What's up, everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift. We are an SLP couple from California with three boys and a passion for finding better ways to support autistic kids. I'm Chris. You might know me as Speech Dude. I'm a neurodivergent high school SLP and the creator of the dynamic assessment of social-emotional learning, and I specialize in crafting neurodiversity-affirming IEPs through my online course. And I'm Jesse, a sensory integration trained SLP, owner of a top rated clinic in Los Angeles, and the creator of the Inside Out Sensory Communication Programs for Parents and Therapists. Join us weekly to learn neurodiversity affirming ways to support social emotional development and regulation in autistic kids. Are you ready to make the shift? Let's do it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Making the Shift. That's what we're doing. We are making the shift every day of our lives. And so are you because you're here. And that's what it's about, right? That's right. And I was just going to say, you could just tell we had a rough day by looking at my face right now. But <laughs> sometimes... so tired. <laughs> I had a somewhat rough day, but... It's back to being in uh, calm waters. The waters were a little um, choppy there for a little bit in the boat, but we're starting to return back to the harbor. Yeah, we had a whirlwind of a day, which started with my OB called me this morning and said he was reviewing our ultrasound, which was yesterday, and that it looked like there was asymmetry in the ventricles of the brain of the baby. And he said, it's nothing to like worry about right now. We're just, we want you to see a specialist. And I wasn't really worried until he said, we want you to see a specialist in the next couple of days. You know, that was what, cause well, I was thinking yeah, like, exactly. oh, we have some time. And then the office, the specialist office, which is gosh, what kind of specialists are they? Genetics, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly what they are. So they called and they actually got us in this afternoon. And then it was just the craziest experience that we had a meeting with them with a genetic counselor. And they told us that there were, they say one or multiple cysts. Yeah, they said they're really tiny. Cysts in the baby's brain, which was news to us. So they were saying that like with the cysts, if they also find asymmetry, which they were going to do another ultrasound today, then that we would have to probably do an amnio something synthesis. Is that what it stands for? Long word, where they test the DNA of the baby in the amniotic fluid, and then we could. I don't know. It was just a whole thing. It was very scary because they were talking about like all the things that could go wrong. And like, if there were going to be any chromosomal differences and all of this. So, but they said, you know, we won't know anything until we do the ultrasound. So then we do the ultrasound, which did you love that doctor? I thought she was amazing. That was my first ultrasound perspective here. Like since March of 2020, when the world shut down, it's been challenging for me to be able to be um, able to be admitted into these rooms for health and safety reasons, but they yeah. were okay with it now. And so I got to go to my first ultrasound. So for baby Jack, I didn't 
have any of those opportunities other than FaceTime. So it was a really good experience. I mean, today was a rough experience <laughs> yeah. that ended up. But that doctor, she was so amazing. She was this older woman. It was like, she didn't need to be working because she was so old, but you could just tell she loved it so much. Right. Yeah. So she said that there are cysts, which is just fluid. She did not see any asymmetry, which was really good. And the cysts, she said, can be very normal. A lot of times people, babies will have them and then they'll just disappear. But it's really, it wasn't something we had to worry about now. I'm going back in a month to and, check on it. And so, yep, that boat's coming right back in because the outcome of it was much better than what we had projected or what but we it was had like been initially an told. hour of terrifying genetic counseling followed by a super quick ultrasound for us to assure us that things were like looking pretty good anyway that's that yep that is that <laughs> so here we are but i was really excited for this show tonight because i think that this is such a great topic and one that like we get really fired up about which is AAC and I shared a story today this morning on social media and this is like I wish I could say that this was a an intense one but I wish I could say that these things don't happen all the time but they do but I shared a story this morning about how I had a we had a client here in our clinic we were working with and for a couple of years, we spent working on AAC with them on his device, and he was doing really well, but that the mom decided one day that she wanted to only focus on verbal speech. And we had told her why we would really recommend continuing with the AAC, and then she responded by discontinuing with us and then telling me that she wasted two years of her kid's life at our clinic. So... We got a lot of love, thankfully, on that post. But let's talk about why it's important to accept AAC as a form of communication, especially if you're trying to be a neurodiversity affirming therapist. Yeah, let's, I mean, so I could chime in a little bit on that initial part. It's not even like the AAC, it's just communication in general. As neurodiversity affirming therapist, what is the overall goal? Like the overall goal is autonomous communication, right? Getting individuals, people should be able to have and make their own choices with what they want to say, regardless of the form it takes, right? So it doesn't have to be specifically saying, hey, verbal communication is superior than other forms of communication. Yeah. It's validating and accepting that all forms of communication are okay and equally as important. Um, there is a quote, and I'm probably going to not get it word for word, but it's worth sharing. She is an AAC um, specialist. Her name's Gail Porter. And it's something along the lines of what autonomous communication is, which is that people should be able to say what they want, whenever they want, to whomever they want, however they want. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly what autonomous communication is, is that last part is really important, I think, because sometimes we put a lot of demands, especially with society norms of verbal communication. 
but it's like, hey, autonomous communication is also being able to have your choice of your preferred method mm -hmm. of communicating, right? This is so important for the IEPs. This is so important for our clients and the students we work with um, yeah. to really grab that, that concept. But I will say, unfortunately, we get a lot of resistance, a lot of pushback. Type in the chat if you have had resistance when introducing AAC, I'm curious, or if you're a parent and you felt that initially. And while you do that, I also want to say that um, following and or shadowing what Jesse said, if there are questions on this topic that you have, feel free to put them in the chat so we can figure out um, which ones we know the answers to. Because <laughs> <laughs> you might have a question where I'm like, oh, I'm going to pretend I didn't read that one. <laughs> so I will say that I think some of the main resistance comes from the fact that a lot of people believe that if kids are using alternative communication, they will not develop verbal speech. And some kids may not develop verbal speech, right? Some kids are going to prefer to have other forms of communication their entire life. However, the problem with that belief is that it actually is the opposite of what research so shows. Research shows that using a device actually facilitates more speech production. Right. Absolutely. It does not hinder speech development. Using a uh, multimodal communication, all different forms of communication, using an AAC device facilitates expressive language. It helps build receptive language because it's giving the individual access to the environment and giving them the ability to communicate. Yeah. So. Um, that's really something that we um, emphasize when trying to make the shift for parents who might be a little apprehensive on their thoughts of saying, well, my child does speak sometimes or they do um, communicate at times. It's really how do we get the message across to say that accepting and supporting multimodal communication or a variety of forms um, is really important to meet autonomous communication. Yeah. Okay. You know? So let's get into the top five mistakes we see. And I could say this is such a dense topic. Of course, there could be a million things we go into today, but we really chose specifically mistakes we see that kind of conflict with neurodiversity affirming practices specifically, not just like best practices for implementing. Um, so the first mistake we see is not introducing AAC early enough, or on top of that, assuming that there are prerequisites that kids need to have before you can introduce it. I mean, we see, it is so heartbreaking for me, but I think it's not uncommon that kids will go up to age like four or five with no speech before they're introduced to a communication device. In our clinic, we will introduce kids to AAC, whether that's a device, core board, immediately, you know, right from the time they come in. We have kids that are 18 months old who are coming in and we're introducing them to other forms of communication. So there is really not a time. Kids don't have to be a certain age. Right. And the prerequisites to that, I think sometimes 
it can be presumed that there has to be a certain level of cognitive ability or behavioral situations or um, all, uh, other things. And it's just not the case. So if we can remove those barriers and that type of thinking, then we can provide the best opportunities for our students and clients that we work with. Yeah. So when are they ready? They are ready now. Yeah. And for yes, robust today. communication. So you might We're hear that. We're going to talk about that next. What? Hold your thought on that. I'm going to hold that thought. <laughs> I'm going to dangle it right here. Okay. Let's go to the next mistake to avoid, which is assuming that you have to start with low tech communication. Um, we have lots of, we see lots of, you know, families or therapists that assume that kids have to start with something that's like easy to use, low tech. And by lo low tech, can you define that? Okay. So let's go back. What she means to say is by limiting the amount of choices, because by all means, if a, an individual um, requires low tech, low tech just means you, you could use paper or communication boards, right? Mm -hmm. But what we're trying to say here is, yeah, don't make the assumption that we're, we should only give the child two choices. We want it to be a robust communication system, whether it's low tech or high tech. So again, let me try to define that a little easier. Low tech can be something such as a communication board or a communication book, right? But it's got a lot. It's dense with vocabulary. So that way we're building on autonomous communication. If we're restricting a child by just giving them a choice of two, then they're not really expressing their true potential of what they can do, right? High tech is going to be more of your devices, your iPad, your computers, your um, iPhones with an AAC app, things like that. But so um, really the mistake that's made sometimes is limiting a child's access to a robust Right. communication system and kids from a very young age i mean i'm biased because if we will introduce kids to high tech whenever we possibly can um the only thing i would say that stops us would be like limited resources if ever if anything but we will do that whenever we can but there's this assumption that oh well, we need to start with something that's easy and then we can move on to something else when in reality, we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but in reality, it's a lot better to set kids up um, for something that could be long-term for them. And the other, going back to that mistake that I see so much, especially now that I work directly with parents through our parent program, is that they are starting with PECs or assume they need to start with PECs. If you aren't familiar with PECS, it stands for the Picture Exchange Communication System. It's essentially, you know, pictures of the things that they might want to request. And it goes through all of these phases. I was trained in it a long time ago. And the thing that isn't, a lot of people are not supporting the use of PECS anymore. And that's because it's not a robust system. And it's also because it's compliance-based. So it's based on ABA. So it's the opposite of autonomy. So when you have a PEC system, they train you to build it on a compliance-based model. So what you're doing is you're telling the student what to say or what to point to. And that limits the child as years go on to be able to speak their own thoughts, to be able to communicate with who they want, however they want, 
and why ever, you know, all of those things. So um, those are just some things to think about because really the idea again is to support the learner. So over time, they're learning to be able to communicate and also to be able to, to, to protest. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's the other thing to really consider too. Right. Um, With PECs, it's very much request driven and I don't, and honestly, it's been so long since I used it. I couldn't even tell you the answer to this because I don't think it's necessarily set up for that. I think that's just how we end up implementing it because we're like, oh, you want a ball? Okay. And the child gets their ball. And the other thing about PECs is it is based on hand over hand prompting. So you actually like take kids hands and they're holding on to the picture and have them walk and give it to someone else. So anything that is um, you know, hand over hand is not promoting body, bodily autonomy. We want kids to have control of their own bodies. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that um, when I mention compliance, it's usually, I, I'm going to talk about that um, just to be clear on that too. It's um, when the person is in control of the user, or it's more of like a manipulation to say, to get the person. So, so like usually, our relationship. <laughs> that's right. And so, so autonomous communication is, is, is definitely it. There was a, I don't want to jump off topic too much, but there was a question that does come up quite often, which is, um, is it okay when parents, um, caregivers, teachers want to um, let the student use the iPad for games and their AAC app? And I think that um, we've talked about this in previous episodes. We always want to explore the why. I definitely don't see that as a, as a thing. Like we figure out, you know, and let the child explore the device, right? So if they're using it for games, I think that's okay. As long as over the long run, we're also modeling and providing an outlet for the, ch the child to use the device for um, I communicating. Wonder, I want to know more about that because I've seen it also really difficult where, um, like then it turns into a battle of having to turn guided access on and they can't get out. Yeah. I mean, if I don't you know the are yes here. Put in the chat. Let's take a poll to see. Are you guys in support of games also being on the iPad or do you separate it as its own device? Let us know. This will be good. Yeah. Again, I don't know the answers to that. Um, if it's a right or wrong thing, I do know that within the community of AAC users and the discussion is that, Hey, the kids are on there and they're doing it for a purpose and they have autonomy while they're playing the game. And that can be another way. But again, as Jesse mentioned, Look, we're getting some responses. They have to be separate. Kids have a hard time differentiating leisure and community versus communication device. Yeah. So maybe keep them separate. Yeah. I always think it's good to have. Well, you work with kids and adults, I should say, adolescents who are much older. I think for us, it becomes, yeah. it's really hard when you're introducing a device to like an 18 month old. But we have the problem where parents get really excited when they get the funding and then they go nuts downloading all of this stuff on the app. This literally happened last week. They download as many games as they can on this iPad, which was funded by, you know, a program and they just end up using it for games instead of device. But um, there, yeah, there's yeah. an accessibility feature on the iPad that you can go to the settings and you just triple click the home button. And what it'll do is it'll lock the app that you're in. So let's say you're using Proloquo to go 
you can triple click the home button, set a password, and the and then you really have a variety of tools that you can do. Sometimes guided access causes a lot of issues because kids get frustrated. They're like, but I don't want this. I want my games. So I think the consensus I would say in the group was separate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but we'll have to, this could be a whole debate. It's a tricky one because in <laughs> schools, you, it, you know, you don't yeah. want to sit there with two different iPads at the desk. So you have to think about all of the environments in the settings. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Our next mistake to avoid is giving restricted access. Right. So I can talk about that. Um, It's just really um, not having any restrictions to the device or their ability to communicate. So um, we just want to ensure that throughout the entire day, at all times, student has access to their device. Every once in a while, we might see that um, a student will go from class to class. In one class, they have access to their, their device. And then in three other classes, they don't have access. So it's just one of those things where it's really um, something that I emphasize on the importance of the student having access to the devices. Yeah, you know? my pet peeve is when families show up to the clinic and say, oh, we forgot it. And I'm like, okay, if they forgot it to the most important appointment of the week where we're going to be working on it, there's no way this device is going with them everywhere else, you know? But it's this idea that this is their voice. We don't want to take away their voice. And we also have a really interesting stat, which is, we'll see if I can spew this out correctly, but It's the idea that we cannot expect kids to pick up a communication device if we're modeling it for them twice a week in therapy that has to, we have to get so many models of how they use that device all the time in all different contexts. So this stat is that if we only modeled the communication device twice a week for 20 to 30 minute sessions, it would take 84 years for kids to hear the amount of language that would be modeled typically to an 18 month old by 18 months of age. So an 18 month old would hear a specific number of words up to that point and it would take an AAC user 84 years to get that same amount of language stimulation through the device if we only modeled it twice a week. Right, so that's such an important- Yeah. Thing to know, yeah, having access to it as much as possible. And I feel and like that's something you see at the school so much because they just like throw them in the closet and let them collect dust. Yeah, so that's um, the training and the modeling. I can't tell you in stress enough that being able to use our knowledge to model how we use it. So that way the instructional assistants, the one-to-one aides, the classroom mm-hmm. teachers are picking up on our ability to embed that within the class, within the classroom while we're modeling, while we're demonstrating good modeling skills. Yeah. And someone posted in the chat about how it's, it's her habit to model all day long because that's how we learn language. How do we learn speech through modeling it? How do we learn AAC through modeling it? Yeah. Really important. Okay. Let's hit this next one. The next one is 
a mistake that people make is not presuming competence. And we see this all the time. And I know that people are talking about this a lot more now, which is exciting in general, that we need to presume competence. But so often, especially in our non-speaking population, we are not presuming that they are competent. We're not presuming what they're comprehending, that they're comprehending what's going on. And what that results in is we are not providing them with the language simulation that we might otherwise. So for example, if we are going to presume that a child is not going to understand how to use this device, we might choose to have like only four pictures in the visual field on the device and then decide, okay, well, once this child understands how to use those four, then we're going to make it eight, then we're going to make it 16. But really we, and I could be a broken record because of how much I have to tell families this. I just had this conversation with a family in our clinic. You know, I said, um, we really want, because she was changing out the buttons a lot and she lowered the amount of, um, that were in the field with this kid has like amazing comprehension. He did not need fewer pictures in his visual field, but she had lowered it. And then she kept changing out the pictures. And I said, you know, imagine if someone took your computer and just popped all the keys off and put them in different places. You know, when we learn to type, we're not consciously thinking, okay, H E why our fingers are just learning that motor plan. And that's the same thing that happens with AAC. So we don't want to start kids at this lower level field and then decide, okay, well, now they're ready for more. Let's change up the whole thing because it completely changes everything that they've already learned. Yeah, I agree. That's like me and my guitar. If like somebody would all of a sudden switch the B string and the A string around, and tell me to play it. I'd be like, nope, can't play those chords anymore. Mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time learning where my fingers go with the way they're placed now. Don't switch them on me. Yeah. And that's such a good, like, these are analogies that you can see way is going to be most meaningful for them. Yeah. I actually go onto a website to learn guitar songs called ultimate guitar. And it's nice because same with YouTube, somebody's modeling how to play it. And even though I'm, pretty good i could always get better by somebody else modeling it giving me a visual of oh okay that's how that is song is um strung that's how the my finger shape's supposed to be that's where my thumb goes things like that so it's always helpful in any context to have good modeling that's my autonomy i get the choice of what songs i want to learn and that's a good lead into our final one which is not forcing kids to use it and This is really more about the approach you're using and all of you guys saying in the chat, you know, model, model, model. That's what we want to do. And I will admit I did not always do it that way. And I don't think that's what we're taught. Um, A lot of the times we're taught like, oh, you want the, the block? Show me block. Show me block here. Okay. Block and helping them hand over hand and really like forcing it out of them as opposed to just encouraging them by modeling it a lot and yeah and allowing them to explore this really goes back to yeah absolutely not over prompting right i think again we had talked about Mm -hmm. packs and it's one of those you know over prompt and when you based on prompt it builds dependence right the overall goal 
is actually not even independence. Think about it. Autonomy is the goal. Like if we have a student who can do something on their own, but they're not making their own choice of what they want to say or what they want to request or who they want to comment with, then we're not building on self-determination, right? And that's the overall goal for neurodiversity affirming approaches to help our learners. We really want to build that autonomous communication. So um, I'll give you an example of a thing that I had today. <laughs> I was working with a group of students. We were talking about Halloween coming up and about, um, you know, our favorite thing about it. One of the students said um, we were talking about candy. So I turned to the other student and I asked him about, you know, his favorite candy. And he went right to his folder and he said, wild crats, right? Took him a little time, by the way. I always I've never heard of this. So wild crats is like a TV show. It's like a cartoon on oh, one of PBS, okay. I think. And anyway, but I, I, I allowed him the opportunity to explore and he typed in wild crats. So rather than me saying, no, that's not candy. I ran with it. I'm a wild crats. Are you going to be a wild crap for Halloween? And he just like burst in laughter. And I said, oh man, which wild crap are you going to be? And he gave him a little bit of time and he typed and he went to blue. I'm all, you're going to be a blue wild crap. And what are you going to go? Are you going to, what are you going to eat for Halloween? And then at that point I modeled for him, you know, how to find the candy section, but it was a matter of exploration. It was a matter of letting him do his thing because that's autonomy. And man, we made it fun. Like this kid was smiling from ear to ear. That is success. That's a successful session, especially. Um, that's a lot of mistakes people make is like, Oh no, you didn't mean that. You know? Oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, because again, the overall goal is autonomy autonomous communication so that's how we're doing it yeah and someone put in the chat which i thought was a good point was that if a child is communicating the need without the device that counts too and that goes back to our what we talked about at the beginning you know validating and accepting all forms of communication and there's not one right way and that our goal should be to get the child to communicate and communicate autonomously in whatever form is the most comfortable for them Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's another one too. Um, yeah. When a student like makes a gesture to go to the restroom, we don't want to stop and go grab the device and say, here, you have to use your device. Like they've already communicated autonomously what they need to do. Yeah. So um, some things to one. consider. So if you guys have any questions or topics you want us to address on our show, please reach out to us send us a DM or something and let us know because we would love to do more answering questions that you guys have and bringing you topics that you want to learn about. Absolutely. Thank you so much for chiming in. We hope that you found this one valuable. As always, stay cool and be legendary. All right. Bye, everyone. See ya. Bye.